everyone, this is Dr. Liz, and you're listening to Include with Dr. Liz. This show is about everyone, all people, including you. It's about people and their diverse lived experience in this world. I chat with guests to get to know them, their identities and their inclusion needs. So we all have an opportunity to understand how best to include them. So together, we can create a world where everyone thrives. Today's episode of Include with Dr. Liz is just a little bit different. We're going to take this opportunity to explore the inclusion needs of a grieving parent, and that's me. But so that I don't have to do it alone, I have Sheila Walsh here today. She's going to take over the role of host fellow inclusion researcher and practitioner. She has a specialisation in inclusive leadership. Welcome, Sheila. Thanks, Liz, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I know that today is is going to be one of these special episodes, not just because we get to know a little bit more about you and about the identity of a grieving parent and the needs, but also because there's a graciousness in what you're bringing to us today, which is some of the conversations we don't always know we should or shouldn't have, and some of the things we need to think about when we are dealing with someone who's going through something we're not familiar with. So Liz, can we just to respond to how you've done other episodes, could I ask you to tell us about what your identities are before we get into the discussion today? Of course, that's only fair. I ask everybody else that question. Uh, So I identify as cis female. I am a parent and this is hard. Uh, I have a chronic illness. Um, I also have mental health or anxiety, medicated, ADD, uh, and I'm a survivor of domestic abuse. So I know that you have been asked a lot of questions since your son passed. And I know that you've collected the questions for me to be able to to bring to life in the questioning. And I think understanding your identity will put some sense into your experience of these questions. And hopefully it will help listeners to think about all of the different um, ways that we respond to people's needs. And in this case, a grieving parent's need. Would you first tell us a little bit about your son and your daughter before we move into discussing um, your son in particular? Yeah. I love them to the moon and back. Uh, And my daughter, she's 24, and my son was 21 um, as of January when he died by suicide. Uh, My daughter is amazingly creative and kind and generous, uh, a beautiful, energetic human. Uh, And my son was insightful and thoughtful and inclusive to the core. Uh, And... I don't know. We had a special energetic connection. And in fact, anytime he was in trouble, I knew before the phone rang. In this episode being changed, can you just give us a sense of the purpose behind it for you before I go into the questions you've been asked and we discuss them? Just to give listeners a sense of why we're having this conversation today, which is quite close Mm. to your son's passing, um, but also why it feels so important to have this conversation today. Some may be listening out of morbid curiosity, but I hope on the most part people are listening out of genuine compassion um, and desire to learn and understand how to either meet the needs of someone that is grieving, how to best respond uh, and support those people, or in fact those that might actually see this in their future. 
Um, I know what it feels like to see this in your future. Um, and I wonder if listening to someone share their experience may have better helped me prepare, perhaps. It's a unique opportunity. I mean, I work in inclusion every day and it's a new identity for me. It's another part of me now that it transforms who I was a little bit and it adds something extra and it takes some stuff away from me as well. Um, it's also a bit of therapy for me. <laughs> you know, I, I stand on stage and tell people as leaders, you need to be your authentic self. You need to create psychological safety through your transparency and make it safe for others to bring themselves to work and ask for their needs to be met. You know, this is me walking the talk. I think what's really beautiful about this offering is that not only are you talking about the needs and that of a grieving parent, you're also pointing to the constant fluctuation that happens in life around being included. And what included us one day may not be the thing that includes us another. And I think these questions that we're about to move through will point to some of these. As a disclaimer, these are not questions I'm actually asking Liz. These are questions that Liz has found in multiple ways that have come up again and again that we're going to discuss um, to different depths depending on how comfortable Liz is and how helpful it might be. I've not re-looked at these so I collated these about a month ago. It's been two months since Dom has died by suicide so I've just sent these to Sheila this morning and said here you go this is what I've got. So we're going to go with the sight unseen uh, and I haven't rehearsed any of these answers. So I'm going to start with the first question um, which is did he leave a note? Now, before you answer the question, can you tell me what it feels like to be asked that question by someone? It's loaded with so many assumptions based on someone's opinion of what likely happened. I understand that I only shared that he died by suicide, so you're going to layer over the top of that whatever suicide means for you. Uh, he didn't leave a note. Um, he didn't need to leave a note. I knew, his family knew, we knew why he died by suicide. The next question is even going to be hard for me to ask you it. <laughs> um, how didn't you know he needed help? Can you believe what it's like to get that message to say, how didn't you even know he needed help? Well, actually, how do you know that I didn't know? I knew. Uh, my son was an addict. And so he struggled with the disease of addiction for multiple years, at least three years that I was aware of leading up to his suicide. And he was, he was given every kind of support you can imagine. I knew because he called me multiple times over the last at least two years um, telling me about his suicidal thoughts. And it wasn't just ideation. Like he attempted multiple times leading up to this. We have had multiple calls from hospitals and police. Um, we knew. There's something in that question, though, that is kind of bugging me. This notion like knowing was going to lead to something else. And it does lead us to the third question, which is why I'm saying that. There's a question here, which is, why didn't you intervene? Again, there's an assumption that you didn't. But I just want to ask, when you're in that moment and you're facing like one of the worst things a parent can face, being asked a question like that, what is the impact of the question before you go and you're answering? A lot of these messages came through at a time in those, like just in the days following. 
right? And there's a lot my mind doesn't remember from those days. And as I shared before around my identity of having anxiety, I mean, I have chronic generalised anxiety that manifests physically in anxiety attacks and in the worst cases, panic attacks. So that's what I was facing in those days. So you've got to imagine my mental state um, and that's how I was multiple times a day, bent over the toilet, sobbing on the floor, like that's what it was for me. But I often was using my phone as my distraction point in those moments, trying to lose myself. Like you were looking for anything to distract yourself from your thoughts. So, of course, you're just scrolling through social media and you're getting all these messages and, I mean, they're confronting. I think I wish I could remember how I actually felt. One of the things that is one of my strengths but also I think a weakness at a time like this is I'm really compassionate and I always think about the other person's point of view before I judge. And I think that's a strength, right? But mm-hmm. in this time I was losing sight of my own need. I was putting their need for the answer ahead of my own mm. and I'm sort of forgiving them um, without allowing myself to feel resentment towards them. Mm. Maybe it's healthy, maybe it's not. I don't know. I could talk around in circles on this, but it feels shit. And I think it's important for you to say it feels shit because so far the first three questions are all about somebody's desire for knowledge and have nothing to do with your pain. Yeah. And I think we have to normalize saying that even with compassion, something can land and be shit. And the person didn't go, oh, let me go and be shit to Liz. But that doesn't mean the person didn't put their own desire above what you needed. And we will get into talking more about what you needed. But I I think it's important to say that actually naming that these things, when we put our own needs above those of someone else whose need is much bigger in that moment, a simple text message, a comment on a thread, can actually leave them more hopeless, more upset, more hurt. And we just need to think about that a bit more. So this leads to another really difficult question um, built with assumptions. But if your son was in Australia, why were you living in the USA? I had my children in my early 20s. And by the time they were in their 20s, felt like it was my turn to go and pursue my dreams. Neither of my children lived at home. Both of them were traveling the world most of the time. So they weren't even at home in Australia for a lot of it. So that's that in simple terms. More complex to that is that I tried every parenting technique with Dom, everything from just kindness to tough parent to angry parent to whatever else. I mean, in the end, I had to what I sort of nicknamed Dr. Fillet. Mm. He would have said, stop enabling. And Every time Dom would enter into a detox or into a rehab or get out of jail, he would come home to my home, recover, sleep for two weeks or whatever, would start helping him, looking for jobs, and then he'd disappear again. And so I was just that safety net that I knew at a point with his addiction he needed to hit rock bottom and he was never going to do that if he had my home always there to land in. So I took that away from him. And that was, it's counterintuitive parenting. It's tough. And I think, Liz, for anyone listening who's been impacted by addiction, depending on where they are in that journey of um, let me love the person better, mm-hmm. right through to it won't matter what I do, 
Um, I think it can be really hard to hear that. So, so I want to acknowledge that we're speaking to Liz after years of processes and efforts and attempts and different approaches to, to a mum who realised that it's not going to be my choice, it's going to be his. And, and I think that's really important. And that doesn't mean your listeners who are in different places on this journey are going to like to hear that right now. But I think it's really important that it is heard, whether liked or disliked. So I'm gracious for you sharing that piece because there can be um, there can be this idea that we just got to love them more. Yeah. <laughs> Better, stronger, yeah. you know. And when you're engaging with addiction and somebody is impacted by addiction, you learn very quickly that at the end of the day, it will be, the decisions they make that will matter most. I attended a group called Na Anon. So if people may have heard of AA or NA, and that is for the addict. And then there is Na Anon, which is for parents of or you know spouses of children of. And it it really helped me, and surprisingly, really helped me in preparation for the grief of losing him. It was about we are not in control. My life had become unmanageable because of the choices of my addict and I had to find a way to remanage my life, set boundaries in my own life with him and set the expectation of how I expected to be treated in our relationship mm-hmm. and that you're not in control. You cannot control an addict's behaviours, decisions. They're not rational. And so you can't apply rational thought to it. And I would even say that there can even be this um, really clever manipulation within it where if they let you believe you can control it, they can get more of the love or the needs, the supply of whatever they're looking for from you. From you. So I think we have to be careful when we engage with addiction that we're not just applying, we'll say, the love approach to it. Because there, there is, I, I believe actually everybody needs to be deeply loved and I don't necessarily believe um, that means not having our own boundaries or. Yeah. And I loved them. I love him still. Uh, but he was a very good liar, very good manipulator, um, very emotionally intelligent, which made him quite dangerous <laughs> with that lying and manipulation, um, which meant for a good couple of years I wasn't aware of his addiction because he was very well functioning. So. You know, there's a lot that goes on behind this. It didn't just happen on a single day on the 27th of January. There is a piece about the grief of parenting someone who's who's experiencing addiction and then the grief of, of losing a child. My Dom, I lost him like three years ago, you know, and I, I've had glimpses of him, little moments in time over that three years that I'm like, that I've held on to and cherished. And I still do. I still anchor back into those moments. But so the grief is so interesting. Um, I'm not grieving the addict. I'm actually, you know, relieved for him that he's not an addict anymore. Mm. Um, but I am grieving my son still, which I've been doing for three years. There is something that happens when we acknowledge the relief of the suffering and the addiction that was inflicting someone we love leaving them and also all of the grief that comes with also losing the person in that moment and and I think you're, you've actually described it really well and, and I think it's important to acknowledge that because I know that some of the biggest shames parents that I've engaged with have 
is that because they felt relief also. Yeah. And so I think the fact you're saying it is, is really important for, for people listening because often losing a person will also bring relief depending on what part of them was difficult to interact with. So this leads us to kind of a wider situation now. So you've been asked these questions and then there is the, the funeral. And obviously you're in the USA and the funeral's in Australia. And I know you were asked why you didn't stay in Australia longer for the funeral. So you've got to imagine I go through these fluctuations like a roller coaster from one minute to the next. You know when people say take it one minute at a time? It's real. And one minute I could be sobbing. The next I could just be lost in my own thoughts. The next I could be watching TV like nothing happened and actually giggle at a joke. And then this cycles to its extreme of panic um, and anxiety physical throwing up on the floor, whatever you want to call it. You imagine it, it was happening. Now, there were moments when I still thought I was going to go to work the following week in between his death and the funeral. I mean, I laughed because it's absurd. Gosh, the brain is strange in its decision-making and thinking. My All my cognitive reasoning had gone out the window. It just didn't, it didn't exist. Um, So let's just forgive me for that. I had some amazing clients that were very accommodating and thought I was nuts. And I said, oh, no, don't worry. I'll still be there next week. And they're like, what? Within 24 hours, I was back to them going, ah, no, I was wrong. I won't be there. I'm suddenly very nervous about being honest and transparent right now. So let's see what happens. So my daughter and her father and Dominic's father, um, my ex-husband, were in Australia and they were doing the hardest stuff. You know, they were working with the police. um, They were working with the coroner, um, with the funeral director, and going through their own grief in their own ways as well. I don't have a great relationship with my ex-husband, and I was nervous about having to have those conversations with him that needed to be had. And we had a conversation that felt okay. I was I actually got off the call and went, he's going to support me and hold on the funeral until I can get on a plane. And his words were, we're in this together. We're a team in this. And I felt immense relief. Unfortunately, grief affects people in different ways. Mm. And within 24 hours, he'd locked in a date and said to me, well, if you can't get on a plane, you can just remote dial in. And... You know, this is probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Can you imagine a mother not being at their own child's funeral? That child that I carried and raised and there was no way I wasn't going to let myself get on that plane and get to that funeral. But being bullied into attending before I can even imagine getting up off the floor and sitting on a plane for 20 hours, that was hard. That was probably the toughest thing I've ever done. So the only way I thought I would be able to get on a plane on my own um, because my husband had just had surgery only a week prior and he wasn't um, safe to fly for risk of blood blood clots. Mm. So I knew I had to do this on my own, which meant not only now was that if, if one week, if we had to wait one more week, my husband could have escorted me there. So not only was I going to be doing the flights on my own, I was going to do the funeral on my own because 
you know, my mother's grieving as a grandparent and my daughter's grieving as a, do- as a sibling. And so I was going to have no one. So I went and saw a doctor and I got heavily medicated to be able to get on that plane, to, to quite literally get off the floor. To stay medicated, I mean, I, I am medicated for anxiety, but not in, mm. not in the kind of drugs that zone you out. And I needed to be zoned out to physically get there and back. And I didn't want to be on them any longer than I needed to. I also had a sense that staying was for others, not for me. And mm. I didn't want to stay talking about Dom and not being in a place of being able to start grieving because I was drugged and medicated. I needed to get home to get off those drugs and then start the process on my own. I mean, I could go into so much more detail about the process of going through security on your own when you're panicking and it is horrendous. So if anyone can empathise with that kind of anxiety and torture, then you'll know why I didn't stay in Australia any longer. And Liz, this brings to mind, I saw a post that you did after returning where you thanked people. And I read the post and it actually made me cry, even though it was a very positive post. Um, but it still brought a tear to my eye because in, in that whole picture, you brought back um, kind of appreciation of other people. But in my mind, I was like, that must have been one of the hellish journeys anyone would ever have to do. Because I know that driving an hour to something like that is a nightmare. But to get onto a plane and fly across the world, to land in a, a soil you left, um, to walk into dynamics that exist and will always, you know, that always exist, but also to have this whole new weight. I I um, I was deeply moved by the post because to me behind it was layers. And it'd be remiss of me not to actually thank publicly one of my long-term friends from school, Cara, who flew from Sydney to LA to then meet me there so I could do the final leg into Sydney with her. Um, and so... That was an immense help. So I'm about to ask some other kind of really difficult questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I I just want to kind of acknowledge that. And again, anyone who's listening, having a moment of that's, that's about me, just take a breath. This isn't about you. This is actually just about Liz sharing the different needs she's had on this journey and how that might help us help other people in this situation and include them more. So this question especially if you were in recovery groups, isn't going to be unusual, um, but it may, it may shock some of the listeners. Um, but the question was, what advice do you have for me so this doesn't happen to my son? And bef- like whether, I don't even know if we should even go near answering it, but what I will say is, what I would love to hear is, what, when you heard that question, what did it do to you first? Because that's what I'm, I'm concerned about. What did it do to you? It was the worst question anyone could ask me at that time. I am just dealing with I'm just dealing with my day. I I can't help you in this moment because I'm trying to just help me. Mm. And I completely understand if parents are struggling and at a loss. I mean, I have been there, but I'm not the right person to ask in that moment. I'm really not. And I still wouldn't be 2 months out. I think that's a find a support group that you can get that from because those people are far further down a journey to help you with that. And I think if we tie it back to your work around inclusion, it, it is pointing to like what I consider the number one bias, which is what about me? We're not actually listening with compassion to understand their experience. We're listening to say, what does it, what does it mean to me? And I think that there's a couple of layers in that question that I kind of went, oh, that's not great. 
One was the assumption that you would have advice to prevent it, because if you did, and if there was a solution, I think you might have used it. Right? So there's a little bit of this, this notion that you were like hanging on to a golden nugget you can give them so they don't feel pain. Um, but there's also this other ignoring of the fact that, okay, this may trigger people to say this might happen to me. And in fact, in addiction and mental health, often when we see um, somebody die by suicide, we, 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 we go to thinking of our own. That's really a normal reaction. I think the part that we need to think about is, do we center ourselves? And that's the central piece in inclusion. Do we keep centering ourselves and therefore excluding the experience and needs of the other? Or do we actually allow that person to take the center stage for what they need? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, what you needed was probably not that question more than anything else. Not helpful. But I think you um, broke that down extremely well. You know, even around that idea around preventing or intervening and all those kinds of words that people bring up, I raised adults. I didn't raise children. You know, I... I was the parent that was seeking to build children that were independent, free-thinking, strong-spirited. And sure, that can go one way or the other. They can use that for good or they can use that for bad. Uh, and so there is no controlling. Like I, I can't control what an adult thinks or does. For the last eight weeks of Dom's life, he was sober. After a um, hospitalisation, he was released into the care of my best friend and her husband. We decided to try something different with um, being in their care rather than with a direct family member. And for that eight weeks, Dom was part of that family. He had dinner at the dinner table every night um, and was clean and sober. So we have to give credit where credit's due. And in conversation that I'd had with him over that week, eight weeks, he acknowledged that choice was on him and not mm. on me. And he kind of had stopped projecting as much. Mm. He still did it very well, but um, as much. Mm. And I think just to flip to anyone asking that question or even thinking that question, I would highly advise you to go and speak to someone because even that assumption that you can prevent it may actually bring you and your family down. Yeah. And so yeah. it's less about the question and more about your fear and support is probably, professional support is probably one of the most um, important things you can do rather than asking a grieving parent about it. So the next question I think is a really interesting one because, again, the assumptions, Liz, and this is what we're kind of like, these assumptions. And, you know, will you start a foundation in your son's honour? No. I already have a mission. I already have a purpose, which was independent of my children. I am a human. I am a person. I am a woman in this world who already had a career purpose and mission. And just because one part of my life was consumed by addiction and my son's life, it doesn't need to become the core focus of my future. Mm. Um, and so I'm going to continue on that mission. And quite honestly, in writing the eulogy for Dom, um, or in preparation for the funeral and a lot of self-reflection on who he was, at his core, he was inclusive. If you had the privilege that I had to stand at the front of the room with the hundreds of people in the funeral and to look around at these people that were there to honour him and to support his family, they were so diverse. 
And in fact, he was inclusive at his core. And there was one of his friends that came up. Uh, his name's Kirk. So, Kirk, if you're listening, thank you. I don't remember a lot from the day, but I do remember that you came up to me and thanked me for the service and said you thought it was the most inclusive service you've ever been to. Well, I'm glad because that's who Dom was. And so that is who I am and is that, that is what I will continue to do in his honour. And I think this assumption that the part of their identity that is loudest to you, that it should then somehow be loudest to them, is a, is a way of excluding people without meaning to. Wow, that's a really great insight. You know, so I think what you're talking about is I can hold on to who I am and my identity can flow and change and be influenced, of course. Mm -hmm. But my personhood doesn't change with one part of my identity. While it will all kind of ripple in it and influence different parts, it doesn't become my identity. I just had a flashback. So we got a phone call at 3 a.m. when we found out that Dom had died by suicide. And I... It is like you see in the movies, or at least it was for me, where I went into the full sobbing and shock and I remember some of the words I said in that moment was, I don't want this to change me. Mm. And I think back now I don't, I'm happy to evolve. I think what I meant when I said I didn't want to change in that moment of real shock and grief was that I didn't want to lose my sense of self my mm. energy and my positivity and my ability to laugh and they're the things that I didn't want to lose and change mm. about myself. And I think that points to those parts of us, you know, like you start with the multiple identities because actually there are multiple parts to us, you know, mm. all the time. And we decide what parts we nourish and nurture and present to the world, keep private but there is something about when something happens to you that is so horrible, so painful, that that might become the most important thing. And I know for some people's journey, it's the only way they know how to do it. For other people, they ignore it too much. And for other people, they, they, they find a way to hold space for it and the other parts. And I think that's what you're pointing to is it and the other parts are here now. Um, and how do I be me with those parts? And I probably should share for people as well that I prepared myself for this, right? So if if I had been interacting with you socially or even professionally um, in those three years leading up to January and when people would say, oh, do you have kids? And I'd say, yeah, my daughter's 24 and uh, my son's 21. Then what do they do? You know, and I, I would share. He's an addict and he's made some choices that have led to a really tough life for him. And, you know, I've had to prepare myself. And I always tell people this. I've prepared myself. It's going to go one way or the other. Mm. And, of course, I really hope it goes the way of him finding his sobriety and being able to find a way to function in this world. But I do know that there is an alternative. So I did prepare myself. And I guess that is part of the grieving process of an addict, mm. um, preparing for that moment. doesn't make it easier, but I think it's making it easier now like I have done a lot of the work um I'm not saying I'm anywhere close to being finishing the work it'll be a lifetime of processing but I know it was his choice and I think Liz that's really important for anyone who's listening who doesn't have an experience with either somebody being you know affected by addiction and therefore waiting for that call 
Mm. You know, people live their lifetimes waiting for that call um, or somebody who's impacted by mental health. And that call has the capacity to come as well for different reasons. Yeah. That it might be hard to understand what preparing yourself looks like, but there is a piece of accepting that you will actually not be the decider. Mm-hmm. That is different for when you believe you are the decider in their life and in their survival. And I, I don't think it is, from what you're describing, it doesn't remove the grief or change it. But the difference is your relationship with it is it wasn't my choice. It was theirs. I still felt guilt. And that is where the, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Should have done that? Could have done that. But at the end of the day, you've got to sum up all the things that you did try and do of which didn't work. Mm. So there really is no what if. There should be no guilt um, because everything was attempted. And so it also wasn't my choice. Mm. So I get, like, I'm able to rationalise it. It doesn't mean there isn't that part of my brain that is emotionally battling the rational. Mm. But on the most part, I'm winning on the rational. And I suppose the piece is that having the philosophy that it's not your choice is going to make that battle when you face it at least somewhat more rational. Yes. (laughs) Not necessarily easier, but it means that you've developed an understanding and a philosophy around the reality of the situation that if you believed you had a choice prior, you may you may be years trying to get to there as the starting point. You're not changing your mission, but it sounds like you're deepening your understanding of inclusion, unfortunately, in a lived way. Um, but it also sounds like you, you are considering more deeply the identities different people have um, because of your own lived experience. So Tying up to work, and you mentioned earlier about that that moment of being like, yeah, I can come, I'll have time before the plane. Um, and you're not the first person I've heard do this. I appreciate like the, the weirdness that goes on. So my question for you is, for anyone listening that might have all these ideas about what you should or shouldn't do, the question you were asked is, should you be going back to work so soon? I'll tell you honestly what my first thought was. If I was a person that worked in Walmart and I was working paycheck to paycheck to pay the rent, I would have no choice but to have to go to work to work. I'm not even joking. That is the first thought I had. I in, it was in a very privileged position to be able to step away from paid work. My husband was completely supportive and just said, don't take whatever time that you need. However, I feel better about myself when I'm working, when I'm being creative, when I'm distracted. Um, You know, there is, for me, I find joy in the creation of my work. And Mm -hmm. so in that privilege meant I didn't have to do any customer-facing work and instead threw myself into further research and design and development of products and solutions. So I would say I probably started to double back into doing creative work about three weeks after Dom. People question, you know, are you putting off your grief by working? I've got a lifetime to process this grief. Mm. I'm not in denial of it. But what's the rush? Mm. No, I'm letting it come naturally rather than forcing into it. I'm being very cognizant of it, um, giving myself space to sleep or to energize and just flex with those ebbs and flows because that's what my body and my mind and mental health need. Having choices about how you grieve, whether that's whether you return to work or not, because usually your finances make those decisions. Um, 
get out of the way of people making their choices. So if they have to go to work, then like let them do it the way that they need to do it emotionally speaking. And if they don't want to go to work, if they do, you know, I think there's something going on where we have these rules about grief, like who you should be and how you should be. And I think if anything, if somebody is choosing something, trust that they have an innate wisdom to know what they need in that moment. Just accept and support. And this kind of leads us to, to the next question where you've been asked things for like, what is the right thing to say to someone who's going through what you're going through? I know people are awkward about this. I'm one of those people. I work around this stuff all the time and I still go, because you don't want to hurt someone. So I think it might be helpful to tell us what you think is helpful to consider when you're dealing with somebody who has experienced a grief and you may not know how to be appropriate with them, as we've seen some of your previous questions. I was really grateful for the inundation of messaging because it was in those first few days because it validated Dom's presence on this earth. It was a fabulous distraction. I would have noticed if I didn't get messages. So please send messages. All right, Mm -hmm. that's number one. Don't avoid it for your fear. Please send a message. Secondly, it doesn't have to say much. And I I used to joke, and and this is just was me, my wicked sense of humour trying to find funny in the worst parts of my life, but it was like lots of people who said, who I would say actually said the right thing, it was like they copied and pasted it off the internet. They've Googled, what should I say? And that's okay because I just want the message. I all all you need mm-hmm. to say is something like, I'm so sorry, or I don't have the words. I'm here for you if you need anything. That's mm-hmm. it. I didn't I didn't need anything more. I just needed to see your name come up on a screen with a very simple acknowledgement. That was it. However, when sending a message as well in that point of time, don't expect a response. I didn't reply to anybody. Mm. Um, in fact, I didn't talk to anybody outside my husband, my mum, my best friend, and my daughter for about a month. Mm. So don't expect a reply. You may never, ever get a reply. But do know that that message was welcomed, was needed, and appreciated. The first part is acknowledge the person is experiencing something painful. Just acknowledge. The second part is don't expect anything from them. <laughs> in relation to that you know like just give and know that that that's enough but know that your name not popping up could be hurtful so let your name pop up with the awkward message and don't be waiting for a reply or getting odd about it you know and even on that reply thing I I mean this is just another interesting way that mind works is that I went and bought a big deck of thank you cards Uh, I ordered them on Amazon about 50 of them arrived. There's so many people I want to thank. I can't sit down and write those cards. Because I mm. to write those thank you cards forces me to have to sit in the grief again and have to focus on the funeral and look back. Mm. I'm kind of, you know, the behavioural scientist in me is so much more focused on future. Like what do I do now? How do I move myself forward positively um, versus continuing to look back? Mm. Uh, so... I haven't used those thank you cards. So let me use this moment to thank everybody for anything that they did over the past two months for me. And I I think it's really important that anyone listening goes, oh, so it does matter that I turn up or that I send the message. But what I have to do is remove social expectations from that interaction Mm -hmm. because those social expectations might actually 
want the person to touch into something that right now is not where they want to put their energy. You know, this is actually speaks to the funeral as well. I realised attending a funeral as a guest isn't so much for the person that died, it's for the people that remain. Mm. And even if you didn't know the person that died, but you know the people that are grieving, please go to the funeral. Mm. Because I don't remember a lot about the day and I didn't see many people. My brain sort of just didn't register faces or, or names or even conversations that I had. But had you not been there, it's not that I would have noticed you individually hadn't been there, but if that room was empty, that would have hurt more. So mm. please know that if you felt unseen because you went and I didn't get to speak to you or whatever, I thank you for coming. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that is something I'm going to take on board. I am going to attend funerals in future for people that have lost someone. In my own case, we had a situation and I didn't really think people needed to see me at their funeral. And then having been at a funeral that was very significant, I was like, oh, my God, this matters. Mm-hmm. Like it matters in a way you don't know until you're looking into the crowd. Um, and and so I think that, that that's kind of a lovely gift. What can you do? You can, if it's within your remit, you can attend you can like put your face there. And even if you're ignored, you can know that you've done something really important. I know you've kind of pointed to looking forward. And so I suppose this question is about, do you find yourself going to moments with Dom? Do you find yourself like having particular thoughts about experiences with him or memories? Um, and if you do, how does that serve you? And how do you find those, those moments? I've only been able to do that in the last week or two. So I, have, I hadn't been able to look at photos of him um, from a child. I didn't want to think of him as that little boy. Um, it actually it was people would say, oh, I remember what a cute little boy he was. And, oh, like that would just because I would imagine that little boy dying versus the addict dying. And I think if why have I only been able to think about those positive memories over the last week or two is because of the power of the tattoo that I had. Um, done. Mm. I cannot tell you how amazing it was in enabling me to step away from my anxiety to process grief. And I'll be honest, I was getting the tattoo as an out of memorial, not for a grief processing exercise. But I have to say concurrently, I was the first time in my life starting to get really angry at my anxiety. Mm. really angry and resentful because any time I would try to have a grief thought, you know, just to do some processing, my anxiety would rise. When anxiety rises into an anxiety attack, it's sort of the way I describe it, it feels like it's in my throat and then once it blows over into a panic attack, it's a full-body experience. So when you feel that rise, I've got to push the grief thought processing away and I've got to then focus on pushing the anxiety away. And I just felt like this isn't fair. I didn't get to do the grief work that everybody else does because I'm having to battle this damn anxiety instead. The luck had it. And on that first four hours sitting of that tattoo and it was not pleasant, <laughs> it hurt a lot. I f- it was bizarre, but I suddenly was able to start thinking about Dom and the grief process and thinking about thoughts that I hadn't had not been able to get close to because this pain was suppressing my anxiety. 
my mum, after I finished the final sitting of the five hours, when I told her that I'd got the tattoo and, you know, it really enabled me to process some of the grief without having to deal with my anxiety. Initially, her first response was fabulous. She said all the right things. You know, she's 70-something. I shouldn't really disclose how old she is. But um, she was really kind and compassionate in her response. And then we have a fortnightly call on a Friday night and she goes, look, I lost sleep all night last night. I'm really worried, you know pain can become addicting, you know, all that kind of stuff. I said, Mum, you do not have to worry. <laughs> I didn't like the pain that much. I'm not doing that again. Oh. But she even noted herself seeing me on that Friday night saying, you look different, mm. you sound different. I can only explain it as I felt like a gate was opened, like I stepped through something. Mm. I have been able to think about the bad stuff without anxiety since then without pain I have been able to think about positive memories and so why don't I just finish off with one of my favorites is my last um, mother's day with him and my daughter in Australia he wasn't his full self that day but the closest I'd seen him to being him in a really long time Mm. and we had a fabulous mother's day doing everything from laser tag to bowling um, escape rooms you know it was it was the really fun day and we all had a great time together he he was begrudgingly coming that day to be honest but we got to and I said well I, I need you from 12 till 6 p.m that's it you can go and at 6 p.m he's like why don't we go somewhere else after this um so I know that he had a good time as well so there's now that things are different and things are the same you know it's like both seem to be true do you have a sense of what your next steps are now um if they've been changed, if they're solidified, just what that looks like for you now. This only enhances what I do. Mm. Now, in terms of being a, let's call it for lack of a better term, a freelance consultant, Mm. and, you know, I know of a lot of people that I've worked with over the years that have said, let me know if there's anything I can do. And I know that that's just part of their, that beautiful, simple response of, I'm so sorry, I hope you're okay. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Mm. From a professional standpoint, in terms of is there anything that you can do, uh, hire me. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and that's not me selling. What I'm getting at is don't assume I'm not ready. Don't assume I'm less capable. Don't assume I can't fit you in or I don't have the capacity. Mm. Please still consider hiring me. And and I mean me and people like me. That's what I'm getting at. Um, that's how you can help. And Liz, I, I think it, I love that you've named that because I think sometimes people think they're doing you a favour. So they're like, don't want to bother her. So if you're sitting there and one part you didn't want to bother Liz, Liz has told you it's not bothering and cool. And also everybody else who you thought, oh, this might not be the right time for them. Let them make that decision. Don't mm-hmm. make it for them. Okay, so... There's a question here about how do you cope? How do you manage your own mental health through all of this tragic loss? And I think because you opened with your identities, I think it's important to say that if you are facing grief without um, mental health challenges or ADD, you know, you would still be going through a difficult time, but it would be different. So it'd be interesting from your position as what you would say about what's helped you to cope and how you manage and keep going with all of the realities. 
am on antidepressants that function as uh, an anxiety for me. Um, so I do want people to know about that. I share that always openly because I know 10 years ago when I actually really did need it, I questioned whether I should take it. Modern medicine is there for a reason. It's not for everyone. Mine mm. was not a psychological or an emotional thing to be dealt with. It was just chemically me. And so I did need that medication. I also had to use um, stronger anti-anxiety medication to get me through the worst of it. I was very, very conscious of making sure that the stronger medications were only used very short term. Um, mm. So I was off those as fast as I could and then they were there for emergency purposes. I also kept myself away from people and only communicated with people I felt very safe with for um, at least that first month. I did also experiment with socialisation um, and went out for dinner with two other couples. I did end up being triggered halfway through that meal um, and anxiety and I had to leave. But because those people loved me and they, you know, I mean, the, the poor things, they they felt terrible that they did all the triggering because they were meeting, talking about their kids and uh, and they're like, you should have said something. I go, no, but here's the thing. I can't control the narrative and conversation that's going around me for the rest of my life. And so I kind of have a, a theory of addressing my mental health with like ripping off the Band-Aid. And that's not for everyone. Mm. But if I am open and honest and transparent and raw and I allow the stuff to come and I deal with it, whether it's cleanly dealing with it or messily dealing with it, I... I know I'm at least dealing with it and I'm desensitizing myself. And mm. look, there, there'll be psychologists that will approach this so differently. Um, and I really want to reinforce that with, to people because I've been asked questions around this from a psychological standpoint. I can't speak to that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a behavioralist. And that is different. Mm. I am focused on, so, so people understand what that difference is, is I just focus on my behaviours and my thinking and what is and isn't working for me or serving for me and do it differently. Like how am I going to do that differently to get a better outcome? That's essentially what I do. Yeah. I have um, been seeing a energy healer who does massaging and shamanic healing and she does a lot of um, traditional medicine style healing for grief, which has been really powerful for me. Um, and I have thrown myself into work, which for me is, fuels my fire and it makes me feel worthy. And that is really good for my mental health as well. Everybody's going to have different ways of coping, but when you know what you need, which is what you're describing, then it moves us closer to actually having those needs met. I know people are asking you, what do you need? Do you need anything from me? What can I do for you? Can I help? I think it, it really the most simple one is check in expect nothing so that is at its simplest form okay if there is something you know that you could practically do offer it mm. don't just do it but offer it so that could be something as simple as the next door neighbors bringing over saying would you like us to bring over some dinner well i wasn't eating <laughs> so Ask first because I said, look, no, it's okay. I, um, I have no appetite and I'm not eating at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so ask. 
Um, in terms of space, you know, what was really interesting is even my anxiety, I'm not good with crowded rooms <laughs> at all on a general day. I have to give so much credit to United Airlines. I hope no one gets in trouble for this, but I am internally grateful. When I got on that plane, I fell asleep before the plane even pushed back from the gate and I'd sort of propped myself up on the fold-down table of the seat next to me. They didn't even come around and make me put the mm. um, everything back up. You know, they just let that grieving parent sleep. Mm. Um, so just giving me space to do that. Um, my clients around making allowances, you know, they they literally said, so we'll rebook it for next month, but you let me know. Mm. So they made the offering, right? They didn't make me ask. So mm. offer up the support you're able to offer and then let the person accept it. But then also don't worry if we never reply. But we're really grateful that we got it in the first place. Yes, I I think that's really powerful. And the piece around, you know, offer the work, look for you. One of the things I think we can subtly not think about when someone is self-employed is you probably don't have the additional energy for the crappy networking right now or for the like salesy part of yourself. And and so if they if people can like not require that of you to work with you and, yeah. and then like shorten that 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 kind of line to working together. And this is true for anyone that's self-employed that's going through something difficult. You can remove that additional asks of somebody to, to work with them and you make working with them easier for them to work with you. You're going to be fulfilling a massive, not just emotional need because they will feel like, oh, I can do this. I have the energy, but also financial need, which means they then don't have to worry, which means they don't have to be full of anxiety about other things. Yes. And, and so there's something simple about offering what you can do to shorten the space between you and them and then let them decide whether they take it or not. That's yeah. up to them then. What were and are your inclusion needs as you sit here today? I would always just say, what do you need? Ask me. Mm. What do you need? And I will. I may not know. And that's okay too. I can say, I don't know. You know, when we talk about inclusion and practical standpoint in organisations, I always say, ask them, ask the individual. It's really individual. But I also think there's a real onus on us as individuals to preempt. So it's not about having assumptions, but preempt what are some things I could offer that they may not know to ask for. Mm. So instead of saying, would you like X, say, how can I help? And if they go, well, I don't know, you can go, well, I've come up with some ideas. Could any of these be of benefit? Mm. And that takes a lot of pressure off like there's a lot of I know at a cerebral level that I should be asking for help but I'm not a help asker by nature so it's really hard to know what are you able to ask for help with like I don't know um so I think that would be really helpful as well sometimes people will know what they need but they don't know that it's okay to ask you for that and so offer your biggest offer and offer your smallest offer so they know the kind of the spectrum of which you're comfortable offering and so that they can be like whoa that's very big but I'll take something a little smaller or whoa that's very big and exactly what I need yeah I think offer that spectrum so that they know like what you mean when you're mm. saying what do you need there's a kind of space in there for them what are the kind of the array of ways of working with you that 
really is a focus around inclusion transformation. So while there is, you know, expertise around diversity or there's expertise around inclusive leadership like yourself, really what I do is the practicality of making inclusive decisions and taking inclusive actions in everything that you do in an organisation. I'm going to kind of do an add-on to that, Liz. I've taken Liz's work at in terms of the, the published paper recently, The Inclusion Needs of All People. And what I have found is organizations that have found that diversity groups are getting into competition mm-hmm. and that there might be like oppression, oppression Olympics occurring, or there might be what about me type of stuff, that using this paper as our guiding principle for how we're making decisions about the needs of people instead of the identity of people has helped organizations that were really struggling previously to actually move forward together and and not just having people at different paces based on what employee resource group they're in or what level in the organization. So having used your work, Liz, I have to say for any organizations that are in that weird space where their their journey is mature, but they now see that there are these unintended consequences and something isn't gelling, I think call you because your paper has transformed how I'm doing some of these pieces of work and transformed how organizations are bringing like the organization forward rather than groups of people forward separately. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad, I'm thrilled that you bring that up, Sheila, because the traditional approach to inclusion around each of the identity labels, it was a natural way for it to evolve because it came through um, activism, right? That's how inclusion started, where you have the different um, activism groups to get inclusion and equity outcomes. But the problem is, is then you either get in an organisation where you are competing for airtime, right? So there is this competition um, for inclusion, but then it misses out on the whole person. You've got this, let's do a gender program and let's do a race inclusion program and let's do a disability inclusion program. But what about the person that is a gender minority, that is a racial minority and does have a disability, but is also neurodiverse and Indigenous and I don't know, right? There's There are so many layers. And the point being is if you can simplify it down to eight needs rather than 54 different identities multiplied by all the intersectionalities, um, you're going to make it a lot simpler. I am thrilled that you're using it. And therefore it practical. practical. And therefore, it, and already it's created results in places where there were tensions that there was a lot of money went into, a lot of efforts went into, but they didn't bring everybody's needs together as shared needs. And your paper, I was able to say, this is my point. <laughs> and, it, and it, it's actually moved some really significant moments forward in those organizations. So I just think even from someone else doing very similar work, I think hiring you is an organization's best option of actual practical results that don't require diversity groups or employee resource groups to compete, but instead support each other. So the organization moves forward, not just groups. And I and I think it's also important to say it's about, it's not about eradicating the employee reference groups or eradicating people's identities, or it is not that, it's about elevating the whole message because you're all trying to achieve the same thing. And so in any enterprise change, you bring it together as a program and you achieve the outcome together. And that's what it's designed to do. Thank you for having me as a host today, Liz. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your graciousness with sharing your story. And again, a reminder to anyone who may have been triggered by the conversation, either because of their personal relationship with Liz or because you want something to be different in your own life with a relationship with somebody who's in addiction or struggling with mental health. 
go and get your supports. This is not the time to message Liz about that. But if you want to hire Liz for some work, please message her. <laughs> yeah, hit me up. <laughs> and thank you so much for your compassion and kindness and thoughtfulness in our conversation today, Sheila. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.